the stories that we tell, we have some concepts about identity or self or who we are as a person, and that that's kind of a narrative. And so, you know, stories are really powerful and they are vehicles to make meaning out of things, all sorts of life events. But in the case of having aphasia, it can be making sense out of the chaos that's happened. You know, you were living your life and everything was grand. And all of a sudden, out of nowhere, this stroke or head injury or tumor, you know, whatever it was that caused the disruption in language. And so, you know, this major life event has happened. And, you know, it's important because we all as humans use stories to process things that are happening. And so people with aphasia are at a disadvantage in storytelling because the primary tool that you use in storytelling is language, right? And so when you're talking or you're understanding or you're reading or your writing is impacted, it makes storytelling challenging, which then can maybe have you feel stuck in where you're at if you're not able to explore and process that. So I really, you know, have been learning a lot about stories over the last probably eight years or so, and am excited to be able to share one technique in how clinicians might be able to bring story into the clinic room to help their clients. Welcome to the Listen for Life podcast with Genevieve Richardson. Genevieve is a speech-language pathologist rehabilitating adults with communication challenges after a stroke or due to a neurological impairment. Get equipped with knowledge from experts in the field and professionals you need to know. We'll hear stories and experiences from others who are navigating life with aphasia. So, put your earphones in and take a walk outside. This isn't just a podcast. This is a community, a resource, and a support system. We're in this together. Do life. Good morning, everybody. Genevieve Richardson with Life Speech Pathology and the Life Speech Pathology Show. I am so excited to welcome our next guest, I met Dr. Katie Strong at the Aphasia Access Conference that I attended. You've all heard at least a half a dozen shows about that conference. And and I keep referencing it because the theme of it, just talking to a lot of other speech pathologists that were there for the first time, we found our people. I felt for the first time, this is the people I need to be with. These are the movers and the shakers and the doers in the aphasia community. And I was so inspired by Katie, hearing her presentation, hearing what she's doing at the Strong Story Lab. And we're gonna get all into that. But right before I bring her on, I just wanna bring your attention. For those of you who've been following me on social media, I have pulled together a course. This course, it's simple, it's direct, it's straightforward, and it's real. And what I'm talking about is we talk about the basics of aphasia, the basics of cognition, 
and we tie all of those together and put a big bow on it and talk about communication strategies that apply based on what the kind of aphasia you have and the kind of cognitive deficits you have. This is just an introductory course to get the juices flowing, so to speak, but there's a lot of great information in there. If you would like to check it out, uh, the course is called Unlocking Aphasia. It's a video course, it's straightforward modules, and I hope you'll go and check it out. So without further ado, I'm going to take that down and that down, and I'm going to welcome Katie Strong. Hi, Genevieve. Hi, Genevieve. Thanks so much for having oh, me today. So grateful so to have you here. Thank you for taking time out of your busy schedule. My pleasure. My so, pleasure. Uh, just to embarrass you, I, I pulled up your bio on okay. uh, Central Michigan <laughs> University. So this is Katie mm -hmm. Strong. Fire up chips. Fire up chips. <laughs> Katie Strong is the Associate Professor at Central Michigan University's Department of Communication Sciences and Disorders, where she leads the Strong Story Lab and is the Midwest Regional Coordinator for Project Bridge. Very cool. So I don't know about Project Bridge, but I want to know about it. So yeah. where would you like to jump in today? Well, gosh, I could we could do just a quick little something about Project Bridge and you then get into it. the storytelling. Yeah. So Project Bridge is a PCORI funded grant. PCORI is a patient-centered outcomes institute. And Jackie Hinckley down in Florida at Nova Southeastern University got this grant to bring aphasia researchers, people with aphasia, clinicians, and their family members together to be able to talk about how to collaborate on research projects to make research more meaningful for the people who are benefiting from all of the research that's happening. So that sounds like yes. a perfect marriage. Absolutely. Absolutely. And what is your role in that, in Project Bridge? Yeah. So I attended the the very first project bridge and where I learned about collaborating, they call it stakeholder engaged research or co-designed research where we learn how to be good team members with one another and teach each other our values and expertise. And then it got funded again and they did this kind of hub and spoke model. And one of the spokes was in the Midwest. And so I serve as the coordinator in the Midwest for Project Bridge. So we do on occasion training for people who are interested in getting started in research or becoming active on a research team. And, you know, we've had some presentations and publications and we've got a really great website. Ooh, let's see. It's Project Bridge. And I'm not sure if it's .org. I'll have to do a little search here really quick. I should be oh, better at that. Right. But we'll make uh, sure. I, I, I got a helper. Perfect. I, Thank so you. I type Absolutely. that in. We'll double check that link and make sure it's it's good and we can keep Sounds going. Great. But all are welcome. Yes. But yeah, so we're really here though to talk about stories. I love it. I just love mm -hmm. 
And I feel like I've always talked about, talked with my clients about their stories and what's meaningful to them, but I've never mm-hmm. done it formally, but that's kind of what your project is about. It is. Yeah. I, you know, I mean, stories are really the fabric of who we are as people. And, you know, in fact, some people believe that we are the stories that we tell. So kind of that we are what we eat, right? We are who we say we are. And so I was really interested in bringing stories to our clinical work with people with aphasia because, you know, they really are how we connect with people. They're how, you know, something happens to you and you're like, wait, let me tell you, or you've got to hear. And so being able to collaborate with people with aphasia in the clinic room to support them in storytelling has been a passion of mine for a while now. So how does it work? How does Strong Story Lab run? Absolutely. Well, One thing, I guess, a starting point is thinking about like, if we believe that we are the stories that we tell, we have some concepts about identity or self or who we are as a person and that that's kind of a narrative. And so, you know, stories are really powerful and they are vehicles to make meaning out of things, all sorts of life events. But in the case of having aphasia, it can be making sense out of the chaos that's happened. You know, you were living your life and everything was grand and all of a sudden out of nowhere, this stroke or head injury or tumor or, you know, whatever it was that caused the disruption in language. And so, you know, this major life event has happened and, you know, it's important because we all as humans use stories to process things that are happening. And so people with aphasia are at a disadvantage in storytelling because the primary tool that you use in storytelling is language, right? And so when you're talking or you're understanding or you're reading or your writing is impacted, it makes storytelling challenging, which then can maybe have you feel stuck in where you're at if you're not able to explore and process that. So I really, you know, have been learning a lot about stories over the last probably eight years or so, and am excited to be able to share one technique in how clinicians might be able to bring story into the clinic room to help their clients move forward. I would love to hear that technique. Yeah. Before we jump into that, I wanted to explore just a little bit more about this whole Mm -hmm. sense of identity. I work with so many primarily stroke survivors who've had aphasia for Mm -hmm. years and they're all in these different levels of coping, processing, Mm -hmm. some still struggle with depression, some are trying to fight Mm -hmm. their way out of that and figure out who they are now. Mm -hmm. How does story assist with that process? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Well, as I said earlier, it can be a really powerful vehicle for moving forward. And I think, you know, this concept of identity, thinking about who we are, 
who we were, who we want to be, you know, are really essential components of being human. And if you're feeling stuck in some place, it can really contribute to feeling depressed or anxious or scared or, you know, those sorts of things. And one of the things that I wanted to to share with you is that, you know, it's not just nice to share stories these days. Stories have actually been connected to improving mental health. So, you know, there's, you know, it's pretty powerful. There's this, they call it the stepped psychological care model that Ian Nebone and some others have brought from the UK and Australia into the stroke world within the UK and Australia about like this stepped model where they acknowledge that every stroke survivor has challenges with mental health and depression and anxiety. And that regardless of who you are, everyone should have supports in in having mental health support. And so this stepped care is like at the bottom level, everybody should have access to things like support groups or communities to support them in moving forward. And there are a bunch of areas in this bottom tier, but storytelling is one of those areas where, you know, it's not something that requires lots of specialized training, like in the the higher levels of that step care model or things like things that a mental health counselor would be providing that require more skill and training to be able to offer. So I guess what I want a long-winded way of saying storytelling is powerful. I think storytelling is powerful, but other people are saying storytelling is powerful also in helping people to be able to to have better sense of well-being and connect with others. So true. My favorite thing is beginning of every session is a little bit of chit-chat. You know, what have you mm-hmm. done today and what happened over the weekend? And that just gets people engaged. Something as simple as that. Absolutely. And I think, you know, you were talking about people who are living with chronic communication impairment due to aphasia. You know, we know aphasia is a chronic health condition. It's not going to just disappear, you know, one day. And so I think that, you know, stories a powerful way of helping people to really honor who they were and prior to having aphasia, experience what is happening currently with their life and aphasia. And then I think to me, the most important part is visualizing what the future holds and thinking about goals and where they might like, like to head. So I think, you know, that's really, to me, an important aspect. I love the, I, I love all of that, but the component that just stood out to me is if we're as professionals working in this context of storytelling, we can mm-hmm. help the person with aphasia develop and brainstorm and know that something more is possible, that they can keep moving forward. They don't have to stay stuck. It's that hope. Absolutely. Yes. It's kind of, you know, having a sense of purpose and meaning is really what life is all about. And so, you know, being able to visualize what you know, I mean, that's what we all do, right? Regardless of whether or not we have aphasia, we're thinking about what our plans and goals and aspirations are for future. Let's circle back to that technique you referenced a few minutes ago. 
Absolutely. So the My Story project is what I developed during my dissertation. And that's typically the model that I use. There are lots of different ways of storytelling, but essentially we framed this off of Anne McAdams is a psychologist who does a lot of identity work. And he really talks about this who you were, who you are, and who you want to be. And so the technique is really, it's not anything fancy. It's really like inviting someone with aphasia to say, would you like to explore developing your story with me, right? So it's important. Number one is that both parties, the clinician and the client, need to be interested in storytelling. Just like any other therapeutic technique, it's not for everybody all the time. And so you want to make sure, because this can be very personal, or it should be very personal. And so, you know, someone who isn't interested in doing this at this point in time, you know, you should be looking at other sorts of, of things. But essentially, anywhere from six sessions to with our students. We've done it during a semester. So 12 sessions, you know, one hour sessions is what we are typically doing. But again, you can modify this for whatever you have is we're, we're doing a lot of listening to what, what people with aphasia are interested in sharing. They might bring in photos or pictures, or depending on their communication skills, they may write some of their components of the story. The my story model that we've used is essentially six or eight sessions of interaction with the clinician and the, I'll say client, but I'm going to probably call him storyteller oh, from right. here on out, right? Love the that. storyteller. And with a goal of having some sort of verbal presentation that they would share publicly with a supportive, invited audience. And so, you know, we don't just get to sitting down and writing right away. The first couple of sessions might just be a lot of listening and hearing where people are at and things that they might want to explore. And then it's really kind of setting up the story, but it, it, it is on that framework of who I was before, my stroke, aphasia, my head injury, you know, whatever's, whatever the issue is and where I am now, and then goals for the future. A lot of people then have, you know, we usually at the beginning, I guess, of the interaction, we have the end in mind with regard to who we're going to be sharing that with. But I'll tell you this, sometimes it just kind of spreads like wildfire. And then after they share it one time, they're, you know, often sharing it in other places. Yeah, as well. I, I think it's just so empowering to give back a sense of control to tell mm -hmm. your story, however it needs to be supported. But the point is the story is still getting out and it's the person with a pain, it's their words. They are the storyteller. What's important to them, they share it. Absolutely. And, you know, I see, I'm just looking a little bit yeah, in yeah. the comments, Anaviv, and I see that Megan's asking about talk therapy in trauma patients. And I do want to say this, this is not a narrative-based psychology intervention. So I do think that there's, you know, there's story, there's some overlap there, but we're really talking about providing, you know, 
someone an opportunity to, with supported communication techniques that clinicians as speech pathologists are quite well skilled at, being able to help them express themselves in this way so that they may then be able to share this story with whoever they might like to be. So I, I kind of gave a squishy answer there, Megan, but it, it, there's a little gray area with that, but it's not necessarily narrative therapy for trauma as, you know, within the psychology area. Okay. I, I do think, you know, I'm not sure, Genevieve, I guess I wanted to maybe talk a little bit about like the clinical skills that Love are it. necessary for this type of work, because it's not really just about like the product of the story, right? I mean, that's a beautiful process and the product. Exactly. That process is really essential. And so I think, you know, one, as I said earlier, the number one criteria is that both the clinician and the client are interested in this, in collaborating in this type of work. But I also think too, that we have to be very focused on distributing the power in the clinical session so that the storyteller is empowered to share their expertise about their life and what they want to share. And the clinician is, you know, sharing their expertise in how to organize things or facilitate communication or maybe format the story, you know, and so it's, it's a different type of, you know, sometimes in clinical sessions, it's the SLP directing the client in what to, what to do or where we're going. And this really is collaborative. We call it, you know, co-constructing stories. So the story really belongs to the storyteller, but the clinician is influencing how that story might be shared or told or, you know, those types of things. So I do think it's really about partnerships. And I do also really strongly believe that speech language pathologists, you know, we're really good at story, right? We, you know, this narrative is part of our training and those sorts of things, but we really think of story more as like having a beginning, a middle and an end or we talk about story grammar or, you know, you know, is it is does it make sense or those sorts of things. But this kind of story, I think clinicians, we need to maybe expand our, our viewpoint on and thinking about like the power of story and how it relates to identity. So I think clinicians doing some reading or having some training in understanding how narrative and identity are connected so that then we can help help implement this with our clients. Definitely. And I poured over your articles that you've written. I will add those to the show notes for anybody that wants to check them out. Great. Fantastic. Uh, Because I'm actually, I have a grad student currently and we've been working with one Mm -hmm. of our clients after you and I spoke on the phone a couple months ago, I was like, okay, who, who to offer this to? And we're going to be doing a recording with him. So he gets to have the same experience that you have right here. Uh, And it it is so much fun. And for him, he has so many pictures. And so he's Mm -hmm. using his pictures to tell his story. And it's just, it's so powerful. Absolutely. 
Absolutely. Well, in those articles that you were mentioning, we, my, my colleague and mentor, Barbara Shadden, and I have shared this PULSE acronym. If for clinicians that are interested in story work and kind of like dipping their toe in, and Barbara created this acronym that is PULSE, and it stands for Partnership, Uniqueness, Listening, Supporting, and exploring. And we thought that, you know, if a clinician kind of keeps these five things at the center of their work as they're interacting in this story work, that, you know, it really is essential. So I kind of tipped earlier about the partnership, right? That it's really equal. You know, we all have, we both have roles in this experience and that we're, you know, helping each other to guide one another in how the story moves forward and that we we honor each other's expertise at the table. Also then, you know, it's it's the you for uniqueness. Just because you've done this once with somebody, you've done it once right. with somebody. So you have to, you know, be open to really recognizing that every storyteller is unique. Every type of stroke is unique. People have different severity of aphasia or different needs or, you know, those sorts of things and recognizing that. The L... The L for listening really is the heart of storytelling. And, you know, we're listening to receive this story from the person with aphasia and we have to be truly present during that, during the whole, you know, the entire time that takes work for the clinician to, you know, make sure that they are, are able to receive this gift in the way that the storyteller is sharing it. So really working on making sure that we are present when we're listening. The S is supporting. I think this is where we as SLPs excel. Typically things like using communication ramps to support the storyteller or supported conversation techniques, writing, gestures, pictures, you know, all of those sorts of things. And then the E for exploring, you know, being willing to go off road where someone might want to talk about something that maybe you wouldn't typically talk about in a session or do some different, you know, different sorts of things. So just, I think that, you know, really being open to exploring the story and, you know, also recognizing that this type of work influences and impacts not only the storyteller, but the clinician as well. So that, you know, you're, you're, you know, going through this work together. That's how I got into this field. My Mm -hmm. earliest experience, I was introduced to a speech pathologist who specialized in esophageal speech. So his population Mm. were folks that had had laryngectomies and I met him and worked with him over the summer with his laryngectomy support group. And it was Mm -hmm. their stories that got me, literally brought me to this profession. How beautiful. It's there, you know, they really, stories are, they have a hook. They, you know, they, we, they resonate with us as, as humans. Yeah. It's where you find commonality, you compare and contrast Mm -hmm. and see what you have in common and what you don't. And sometimes it's the slimmest thread you can find in common, Right. but then you can build it. That's what's, yes, it's, it's wonderful. I just love the work. Can we tie your story work into how does that fit into the life participation approach? Asia. Mm-hmm. 
For sure. Yeah. So, you know, the life participation approach to aphasia really says that the person with aphasia should be at the center of all decisions about their intervention and their life and living successfully. So I think storytelling fits really well within this model is that, you know, it's very patient centered, relationship based and goal driven also. Right. In that as you're moving through the story, really thinking about what's next and how can that then be embedded into goal setting for, for therapy moving forward. Aura Kagan has that, that A from, or the, it's the assessment for living or outcome measures for, for aphasia. And one of the circles, you know, relating to the WHO, ICF, the World Health Organization's International Classification system is identity and personal factors. And so I think it really just, yeah, I mean, it also though, you know, we can work on language during storytelling and we can work on environment, those sort of things, but really it's empowered, you know, there's nothing more person-centered than having them share and create and construct a story. We can still be targeting impairment level goals, working under the concept or the Mm -hmm. construct of empowering this person to tell their story and as a benefit their confidence increases their identity i I don't know if i would want to say solidified but because they have to shift right anytime someone's gone through a trauma such as a stroke or a traumatic brain injury whatever the case may be they have to shift to a new identity absolutely we might, we might call that like, I love that term. I think it's that, you know, identity and, and we, we're doing it as people all the time, right? You get a new job or you go back to school or you're married, you know, there are different chapters, some things that happen within lives that are kind of primed for reconstructing who you are or renegotiating who you are. I think it's amazing. So let's swing back. We have a question here. Shaylee asks, how do you incorporate storytelling into goal writing? Well, I guess, you know, there are two ways to think about that. You know, goal writing, you know, usually then from the story, the storyteller identifies what their goals might be so that clinically then we could put them into goals for from a third party payer documentation sort of standpoint so that you know that's kind of near near the end of that product but i do think that you know there are things like being able to share personal relevant factors about yourself or you know again like breaking things down into operationalizing things feeling comfortable talking in front of people and what i you know one of the things i found through this work is that it also creates very real opportunities for people to go home and have more conversations with people in their life, in their household, or, you know, they're, we're doing, we're working on something. They're like, Hmm, I don't know what happened then. I was in the hospital and I really wasn't with it or something. Okay, so then your homework might be for you to go home and ask or call or those sorts of things. So I think there are opportunities to like embed like real conversations or, you know, being able to... I don't know if you, if we not, if we need to count things or something, right? Like for goals or something, you know, that, you know, 
how many times are you reaching out to family or friends to connect with them to ask about things? And these these gives you know opportunities for that. So I don't want to say. I, I guess I want to say that it really should be individualized, if that makes sense, you know, with, with, as all therapy should be. And so I think it really depends on like, you're sitting at the table, you decide, oh, we're interested in pursuing this story work. And then what are the other goal areas that we see from whatever assessments or those sorts of things? And how can that be embedded into supporting this through then that story work? Something as simple as empowering the person with aphasia to ask questions, have them practice. How do they start a conversation to get that information that might be missing from their story? Asking questions, asking follow-up. Yeah. It's, it just takes a a little creativity. I, cause I, I feel like our profession is shifting for the better to look at this more Mm -hmm. whole person Mm -hmm approach. And that's, what's so exciting to see. We're not just working on, Oh, what's their percentage accuracy for yes, no questions. Yeah. That's right. (laughs) So, and I think another byproduct of the storytelling is them Mm -hmm. learning Mm -hmm. how to advocate for themselves. Yes, absolutely. And I think that advocacy work, not, you know, it's not a, guarantee for doing storytelling where, you know, it's, you know, like you're going to become an advocate, but I think a lot of people after doing this work or while doing this work, recognize that they are able to share very relevant and moving stories to advocate for whether it's aphasia awareness, here we are in June, right? It's aphasia awareness month, or whether it's having them have their friends or their church community or, you know, work colleagues or whatever know what happened to them, but also maybe how to be a better communicator with them. What, what are some things that they can do as people in their life to be a better supported communication partner? So I agree. I Mm -hmm. see that with the increase in confidence, that Mm -hmm. the person with aphasia might start initiating more like when they go to church or garden club. Yes. And what that does is it starts to break down that barrier, that wall with people who don't understand aphasia and they stay away Mm -hmm. because they don't want to offend or embarrass themselves or embarrass the person. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So I, 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 yeah, I've seen this with a couple of my clients recently not only do we work on the Mm -hmm. impairment stuff but we work on these bigger global goals not necessarily telling their story but helping them achieve whatever it is they're wanting whether it's at work or you know communicating at church Mm -hmm. and they're noticing that people are starting to interact with them more right and that's like infectious because then they feel more confident and are willing to take more risks and be able to, you know, it's, that's a beautiful thing. And if we can involve the communication partner, the spouse, the partner, Mm -hmm. you know, a friend, see, I'm on telepractice all day. So I'm zooming all day. So the beauty of that is I can bring everybody in on. Absolutely. So we can do a little bit of communication partner training to help keep breaking down those barriers. Cause as we know, starting a new habit and how we communicate is not easy. So 
anyway, I think storytelling and empowering our folks is just so powerful. What else would you like to share, Katie? Well, we had talked a little bit about like student training in this area. And, you know, I mean, you know, how do we get more clinicians doing story work. One way is to think about training students who are currently in their master's programs with within the speech language pathology discipline. And so we've started doing some training at CMU through the Strong Story Lab. And we've been, well, one of, we do some of our work in our Carl Center, which is our campus clinic where people might come to us in person or we do some telepractice that way also. But we also have done a more structured program through Virtual Connections for Aphasia, which is a collaborative venture between the Aphasia Recovery Connection, or ARC, and Lingraphica. And we have this program called Aphasia, This Is Our World. And that was named by one of our storytellers. But essentially, we are training students to become story coaches. They go through, they have a class on aphasia with me at the university, but we also do training in identity and story and how those are related. We do some supported conversation training with them. Bree Beeger, who collaborates with me through Lingraphica, does some training on AAC use and how to support people with using devices if that's what they're you know using to communicate. And so once the training is done, it's about four hours of training prior to starting the, the session. We have this it's a, as I said earlier, about 12 weeks of the semester, we have, I usually have six students and six storytellers who are members from the Virtual Connections community who are interested in creating their stories. And we do some story work virtually and each storyteller and student coach are paired and they work as a team to be able to create their story. The students are supported by Dr. Beeger and I in the Zoom, so providing supervision and those sorts of things. And then the identified goal of the, you know, the product, the story will be shared in, you know, after the after those 12 weeks in the virtual connections community as what they call a member spotlight. And it's really, you know, beautiful because we've got this small community of storytellers that are and student coaches working together through the 12 weeks and then bringing it into that beautiful virtual connections community where sometimes we'll have anywhere from 30 to 60 virtual connections members come and hear the stories and then ask questions and celebrate together. So it's really beautiful. I will be talking to Allie Reed of virtual connections. Wonderful. She'll be joining me in a couple of weeks. Stay tuned folks. That's fantastic. I love it. Well, I just wanted to say we've done a little bit of research with the Mm -hmm. students on what this experience was like for them. And, you know, it, it, it's powerful experience and it's something that they've expressed that when they first start it, they're like, I'm not sure what I'm doing or how, what I'm, if this is working or that was really intense. We do have debrief sessions with the students as a team after each of the the week long session or the week sessions, but they've really expressed that they 
feel better able to understand the importance of relationship-centered care, right? This idea that it's a partnership and that I don't have to, I am the expert, but I don't have, that doesn't mean I have to lead with an iron hand during the session, that it's really collaborative. They also talked about how it adjusted their clinical thinking and that maybe data taking isn't always about a percentage, but it can also be about, you know, a, a larger goal, a bigger way of thinking about how to how to measure things. And that also this this was an emotional experience for them, you know, that it was navigating the person with aphasia or the storyteller's emotions, as well as their own emotions. And so having a space to be able to process that. But, you know, I, I do feel like they really enjoy the work. It's hard. It's hard work. They, they enjoy it. And we're also, you know, thinking more internationally about how we might start training students across the globe. So I'm meeting regularly with colleagues in Germany and the UK and the Netherlands to see if we might be able to collaboratively put together some of our work to to show that this type of clinical intervention is is worthwhile. Yeah. Yeah, that it's just a matter of writing it up. I absolutely yep. know that this is worthwhile. The satisfaction clients have Because we can use something as simple as a rating, like what was their communication confidence like when they started Mm -hmm. and where is it now? I mean, we can use any kind of a rating and as long as we can measure it and show. Yes. And I think, you know, sometimes like using goal attainment scaling with something like this would really, you know, pair well. Wonderful. All right, Katie, thank you. I loved our conversation. My pleasure. And I'm excited that the aphasia community, you know, the audience members that I'm reaching, get to hear that there's another option out there. And they can encourage their clinician if they're already in the middle of therapy. Absolutely. And what do you think they should ask for? What if their clinician that they're working with hasn't heard of the life participation approach? Yeah. Well, I mean, I guess I would say reach out, have them reach out to a colleague and maybe, you know, ask or do do a Google search. The Aphasia Access mm-hmm. website really has some beautiful resources on life participation approach to aphasia. I will, I guess, maybe just disclose I'm a interviewer for the Aphasia Access Conversations podcast. Yes. So a little bias there, but there are Hundreds now, you know, hundred plus conversations with people who are experts in the life participation approach. That's researchers, clinicians, people with aphasia. And so there's content out there that, you know, is, is accessible. And like you said at the beginning of this podcast, to me, like joining aphasia access and being a part of the leadership summit really was just like coming home, like finding my people. It was just, you know, really it's, you know, it's a beautiful sort of, of experience. And I think I had a recent podcast interview with Mary 
Ann Eller, who was at the Aphasia Access Summit. And she had, we had a beautiful conversation. Mary Ann is at Duke University. She's a clinician. And she, the title of that podcast is Your Permission Slip to Do Secret Therapy. And, and the secret therapy is life participation approach to aphasia. She felt like she was kind of doing it all along, but she had to like hide it because it wasn't like measurable or those sorts of things. And she's like, when she found life participation approach and aphasia access, it was just like the, the light was shining on her. Exactly. Absolutely. Exactly the same way I had attended Dr. Melinda Corwin's presentation at the Texas Speech Language Hearing Association in March. I attended her course and I'm like, wow, I just loved it because I've always been a functional therapist. I did home health for years and years and years and years. So, oh, this is great. And uh, you know who benefits is, I I know we benefit. I mean, selfishly, I know I benefit as a clinician because this is such gratifying work but our clients are getting back to Mm -hmm. life and, and they're finding themselves and their new path forward. Absolutely. Absolutely. Katie, thank you so much. I will add to the show notes, all the relevant links. We'll put in a link to your podcast because it's excellent. Everybody, you need to check it out. And Katie, thank you. Have a lovely day. I don't know if you have a heat wave in Michigan. We do here in Austin, Texas. Yeah, we don't. We have smoke from Canada. We have like air quality issues happening. Yeah, yeah, you're right there on the front lines of that smoke. We're not getting it down here, but we got the heat. We're we're in the we've been in the hundreds. Yeah, it's pretty serious. Absolutely. Stay cool. All right. All right. Thanks again. Okay. Bye-bye. Thanks for tuning in to the Listen for Life podcast. We hope you feel empowered and supported. Head over to listenforlifepodcast.com to see the show notes with links and information from today's episode. Do you have a topic, a resource to share, or a guest recommendation? Inquiring minds want to know. Let us know in the comments section. Wishing you a fabulous week.